Welcome to the Office 365 Developer Podcast, the only show focused on Office 365 development, where Andrew and I talk to experts from all over the globe coding on the Office 365 platform. For more information on Office 365 development, visit dev.office.com and follow us on the hashtag Office365Dev. All right, well, welcome to episode 125 of the Office 365 Developer Podcast. I'm going solo this week. Coatsy's off traveling around the globe. I'm not sure where he is, but we miss him. But we have a great show. I'll go ahead and say it now. I think my guest this week was probably my favorite guest interview ever. I was just like blown away at like the level of detail he was able to provide. I think it's a really good interview. So I'll keep you hanging a little bit there as we go through some of the weekly updates. So the first thing off dev.office.com, there is a new tool to validate your Office add-in manifest. You know, the Office add-in manif- manifest have been getting more and more complex as they added things like add-in commands. So there's a whole extension schema. And as these get more and more complex, it's harder to write them. Uh, and although we have tools like templates in Visual Studio and the Office Yeoman Generator, uh, in this case, there's a tool where you can simply check your manifest for errors. So this is something that is runs in Node, so you need to basically do an NPM install of this. It's the Office add-in validator, and then you can simply run that against your, your manifest, and it'll help you figure out some of the compatibility issues with what you've written. Uh, the Office PNP team, or SharePoint PNP team, I would say, is is busy always. Uh, in this case, they did a webcast this week on the SharePoint framework and organizational considerations for that. So the PMP team is always putting out great information. This week on that webcast, they go over things like, what are the organizational considerations? You need to think about the fact that this is a whole new skill set maybe for your organization if you came from traditional SharePoint development and hosting locations, governance, all those sorts of things. There's considerations for customers, considerations for the developers and architects. And so this was really good. Waldeck and Vesa were the webcast presenters. And uh, as always, this is something I highly recommend checking out. Um, also from VESA, there was a update to the SharePoint CSOM. There's a new version released uh, for March 2017. And so there's a link to that in the show notes, and it goes through all the details. You can also find that out on NuGet. There's a, that package has been deployed to NuGet. In terms of the community updates, uh, we had a few people that were kind of repeat offenders when it comes to providing great content to the community this week. Waldeck Mastercars, who uh, actually has been kind of quiet recently, jumped out with two posts. One was on correctly referencing images in a SharePoint framework solution. Now, this is something that I've run into. How do you reference correctly like a an image or a CSS file? So if you have provisioned a, uh, a SharePoint framework project, they're using more of the, some of the dynamic like SCSS type elements. And so I had trouble figuring out, well, where do I put images? Where do I put things like uh, just a normal CSS file? And they've done a good job in here. Waldeck's done a good job of kind of walking through this. Uh, he also did another blog post on avoiding errors editing SharePoint framework project configuration. So there's a whole bunch of JSON files that the SharePoint framework uses for configuration. And as you know, uh, Visual Studio Code actually does a really good job of picking up on known schemas. Well, 
some of the SharePoint framework things are so new that those aren't considered known schemas, and so it doesn't automatically recognize those. And what Waldex done is gone through and creating basically some snippets that will help you go. You basically can add them to your Visual Studio Code, and you will automatically get IntelliSense as you edit those configuration files. So kudos to Waldeck for a couple of great posts this week. Uh, Elio Struff, another one of our frequent posters, he actually produced three really good posts this week, so he was super busy. Uh, one was on writing unit tests for the SharePoint framework components, uh, and, and it's a, a really good post. He talks about all the additional things. He's uh, This looks like it's specific to React. He's using Enzyme, which is a uh, set of uh, test utilities created for React, and then some uh, React add-on test utils that he's uh, adding basically as developer dependencies and talks about how to write these unit tests. So again, as we start building more of these uh, you know, SharePoint framework solutions, this is really a good pattern you're going to want to get into, obviously, is how to unit test these correctly. Uh, this one isn't quite so much on kind of Office 365 specific, but I thought it was neat and somewhat relevant to what Office 365 is doing in general with things like webhooks. But uh, Ilio did another post here on calling a custom webhook trigger in an Azure Logic app. Azure Logic apps are really neat if you've ever had a chance to play around with them. It's uh, really neat that you can kind of pull in all these different, uh, basically, tools that allow you to trigger based upon different things and then perform actions upon those. And so he goes about how you could do this with your own custom webhook. And so definitely check that out. Uh, it seems to be webhooks are certainly becoming a standard for uh, how you can do notification and trigger-based things. Um, and then finally, also from Elio, is consuming an Azure AD secured web API from your web application or native app. Uh, this is something that I've done actually quite a bit in the past. Uh, I think it's fantastic that Azure AD is not only a great uh, identity provider for getting to things like Office 365, but it can be your own services. In fact, I would go so far as to say if you're writing web APIs, uh, you should be securing them in some way, and Azure AD does that actually quite easily. It's just a simple configuration in your, your web application that ultimately will automatically take over and uh, require tokens uh, in order to call those, those uh, REST APIs. And so he goes through a lot of detail here around how you do this. There's some really interesting things around uh, how this works. Um, in fact, I was doing a, a client-side application a couple months back that had web APIs all within the same, they all use the same application ID and uh, I, I couldn't get it to work. I couldn't get tokens from for my own local app. And turns out when, when it's the same app, you can just use an ID token. So an access token and an ID token are a little bit different, but it was just an interesting thing that I uh, was able to come up with. In fact, Vittorio was a lot of help in coming up with how to do that uh, because it wasn't something that was very well documented. Um, another really cool post this week, in fact, we're going to have Paul Schaeflin on the show. I've already kind of been chatting with him about this, so I'm not going to go into a lot of detail around this, but uh, Paul goes in a little bit deeper into the developer story and working with custom APIs for Flow and Power Apps. Uh, Flow and Power Apps obviously are, are wildly popular right now. They're highly in integrated into things like SharePoint and lots of other areas. 
And so I, I will, I'll have a link to the post here. I highly recommend you guys take a look at it. But we'll also have Paul as a guest. I've already uh, talked to him, and we think this is a really good topic for a future show. So take a look at that here in the near future. Finally, last but not least, Chris O'Brien, uh, another one of my favorite bloggers, did a really cool post on an intro to Power BI for the Office 365 developer. Now, there's lots of areas where developers can take advantage of Power BI. In fact, they can build their own custom visuals. There's actually APIs to send data into Power BI. There's all kinds of interesting things. This is a little bit more about kind of the general, like what a, a developer should know about Office 365 so they can do some interesting things with it, whether it be, you know, simple as embedding it into like maybe a SharePoint uh, framework web part uh, or using it in different ways. So definitely highly recommend checking this out. And he has a slide deck here that he goes through that talks about it and and a nice post that summarizes all of it. Uh, So that's the updates for the week. That was really quick, probably drinking from a fire hose. We'll have all these links on the show notes out on blogs.office.com and highly recommend you check that out. So I mentioned at the beginning of the show that I thought my guest this week, it was one of my favorite interviews, we have Bill Bliss from Microsoft Teams Engineering. Now we had Richard Moe, which is one of his peers a couple of weeks back, and Richard kind of talked about like the high-level opportunity for developers. If you are interested in doing development on top of Teams. And I I can tell you that going even to things like SharePoint user groups, I'm seeing an incredible interest in Microsoft Teams. And so uh, if you're interested in that, this is the show for you. We go a lot deeper in this show. Um, To me, this is kind of, we get to the geek side of things on, you know, how certain things work and like really doing some powerful integrations with Microsoft Teams. Uh, I was blown away with talking with Bill. I've worked with Bill a lot over the last few months as we worked with different partners, but uh, just kind of the the wealth of knowledge that he provided and, and the depth of it, I think was fantastic. So with that, we'll roll the show. All right. Welcome to the podcast, Bill Bliss. Bill, thanks for being on the show. Thanks, Richard. Well, hey, I, I, uh, I got your bio every week when I produce these podcasts. One of the kind of chores I have is getting a bio and a profile picture of our guest, and I got to say, after reading your bio, I feel incredibly inferior. Can you give us like a, a, a short summary that I h- highly recommend everyone go to the show notes for this out on blogs.office.com, but give us kind of a, a little bit of background about you know your role at Microsoft and a little bit of your background. Yeah, sure. So I currently serve as a partner platform architect on Microsoft Teams, and I was fortunate enough to be one of the people who has been on the team from the beginning. So that's it's been a real interesting, interesting ride for a little bit over two years. I am a longtime veteran of, of Microsoft, but I actually left um, and came back. So this is my second tour, as we like to say. <laughs> I came back in, in 2013 uh, to work on the, uh, the iOS and Android versions of the MSN applications, news, sports, weather, finance, health and fitness, and so forth. And... Um, through a variety of um, uh, other roles, all working in the, in the same team, I ended up on, on Teams. And I ended up being responsible for a lot of what is now the Microsoft Teams platform, including how tabs work, how Teams works with bots, and in particular, working closely with the bot framework team. 
and also working closely with the product team now as a partner platform architect, as I mentioned, to kind of you know steer the platform in a direction that I um, that I think it needs to go based on a lot of the developers I talked to, and also your team in, in developer in, de in developer evangelism. Um, but before I so I was gone, as I mentioned, um, I, it's my second tour, and I was gone for about 10 years. I worked at a bunch of different startups and also VMware and uh, MySpace and a bunch of things like that. And before that, I was at Microsoft and I was also a founding member of the Outlook team, worked on networking and uh, also started the MSN search effort. So I've been, I've done a lot of things um, for the last uh, last several years, um, been on kind of the uh, SaaS-based SaaS world. And that's uh, that's where I think the, the action is. And um, it's been a it's been a real interesting effort to see teams come to life. Very cool. So I think it's interesting hearing what brought like your first role after coming back in 2013 in kind of helping build out some of our iOS and Android presence. How has that changed? I mean, it's it's interesting. Like back in 2013, we were I think still under a different CEO, and you know it wasn't that wasn't so much the story. Whereas now with teams, like from the very get go, we had. Uh, you know, client applications for just about everything. How is that? You feel has changed? Well, it's it's an interesting question. So when I came back, um, uh, the iOS and Android effort that I referred to was kind of a semi skunkworks project. We were hearing a lot from some of our content partners in MSN that, hey, you know, your uh, Windows 8 and Windows Phone apps, you know, they're fine, but you know, people are using iOS and Android apps, and and you need to be there because otherwise working with you is less interesting than it would be otherwise be. And so we had kicked off kind of this semi-skunkworks thing. It wasn't exactly secret. Um, and then all of a sudden within, you know, when Satya took over a couple months later, uh, it became, you know, went from a semi-skunkworks thing to the number two priority in the division after relaunching MSN. And so that really gives you an, um, an idea of how much things changed in a very short period of time after Satya Nadella took over as CEO. Wow, very cool. So I, I'm I'm actually this week at a a, a pretty well-known conference in the SharePoint world. I'm at SP TechCon this week in Austin, Texas, and it's interesting. I I sat in on an expert panel. It was actually part of one of the user groups that they have uh, here in this area, specific to SharePoint. And what was interesting on the expert panel, it felt like half the questions were related to Microsoft Teams, and I, I was curious. You know, SharePoint in the past has been a kind of thought to be like an aggregator of information, which it feels like Teams is is very similar in that vein. Like, how do you how do you feel these kind of different areas fit inside of kind of the all up Office three sixty five offering? Well, it's first of all, it's great to hear that there's so much interest on Teams at that conference. I mean, we you know we get a sense of how much interest there is in our our telemetry and our metrics and how much usage we get, but to hear this kind of interest from developers is really refreshing and um, you kind of made my day by hearing that. Um, but to answer your question, so one of the cool things uh, that um, has been done in Office over the past couple of years was this idea of what has been called, I think is technically called Office 365 groups. They've also been called modern groups. And it's basically the union of Exchange and SharePoint and then other teams have also added on to it with things like Power BI. And 
What's interesting, though, is that even though th there was a unification of these services on the back end, so I got a mailbox and I got a SharePoint team site and maybe Power BI and later on Planner and so forth, there was never really a user-focused experience that brought them all together. So in a sense, not only do we bring together uh, the things that were already together under the covers with modern groups, then we add a chat layer with our our enterprise-grade versions of the Skype services, we also really bring some of the work that SharePoint um, already did to life because now it's part of this unified experience. You know, when you're using a modern group, an, Outlook an Office 365 group, inside, say, um, Outlook or um, Outlook Web Access, it's sometimes easy to forget that the SharePoint site is even there. And so, but, it, it, but this idea that there's all these services, these backend services, bring together into a into a common unit of work, a place to to collaborate on, is I think a big game changer. And in a lot of ways, we just kind of lit that up. It was already there, but it was kind of hidden. And so, just got by bringing that level of integration that it had been done a couple of years before to the surface and built an experience around it, we really um, it really is pretty transformative. Um, I know that when we first started, we've been on Teams, we've been using Teams ourselves um, as a group since, oh, um, spring of 2015. And one of the first things we um, lit up was the ability to integrate SharePoint with, uh, with Teams and Channels. And the ability to have a, a file folder that's associated with a channel in Teams all of a sudden, you know, the you didn't have to worry about emailing or having URLs uh, in your email or having bookmarks in in Explorer, Internet Explorer or wherever you store them. They were just there. You just said, "Oh, they're in this channel," and you click on files, and it's right there. Yeah, there's a path to it in SharePoint and so forth. But yeah, the ability to integrate SharePoint and to kind of bring all this stuff together uh, is in in a common experience has been a real game changer. We'll, we'll have to talk a little, bit, a little bit later about the whole concept of deep linking because I've been doing a lot of work with that over the last couple of weeks. And like to me, that's been a big aha moment of like not only do I never leave a client, but like I, I you know, when you combine it with that ability to aggregate all the important kind of data feeds that are important to me, um, it, it's a pretty uh, eye-opening experience, I think, from a productivity standpoint. So we'll, we'll have to chat about that for sure. I would love to talk more about deep linking because I actually designed that feature myself and the whole, all the stuff underneath it. So yeah, I could talk about that for a lot longer than we probably have. <laughs> cool. <laughs> so um, before we get into things like bots and tabs and connectors, I wanted to chat a little bit. You know, when we talk Office 365 development, uh, the 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 message that we've always said is is I always talk about it as being the trifecta of add-ins, APIs, and an open platform. So add-ins are, you know, I can bring my own experience into a really popular tool, like whether it be Word or PowerPoint or Microsoft Teams. When we're talking about APIs, those are just, again, endpoints that I can call into. And then the open platform is that I can build all this stuff using anything I want. So I think, like, I've seen the vision for sure around Microsoft Teams when it comes to the add-in front. Like, bots and tabs and connectors, those are all kind of extending the experience. Now, I've certainly seen open platform that, I, you know, I've already built... 
you know, tabs with Node and Angular and React and like I can use kind of whatever I want. What is the, I haven't seen as much on the API front, like where you guys fit into things like the Microsoft Graph? That's a really good question and we will have more up to talk about in the next uh, few months on, on this, um, particularly at Build. But to give you a sense of um, uh, to sense of kind of where we're going, so it is our intent to expose all of the Microsoft Teams functionality that is exposed in, in the user experience in the into Microsoft Graph. And the interesting thing um, about that is if if you as, as you know, and but maybe some of your listeners um, may not know, is the Microsoft Graph is was originally conceived as a, a unified API surface and a consistent API surface over what were often legacy APIs on SharePoint, Exchange, um, Active Directory, and so forth. And the idea was to put this graph um, you know, shape on top of things, but to really unify, you know, well, what's the entry point, what's the schema, what's the authentication, all that kind of stuff was kind of unified under the covers. And although there's been there have been changes to the graph, many changes actually since it was first introduced, um, there has never been really a a, a a brand new workload that didn't already have an API, or or maybe OneDrive might be an exception. But anyway, the net of it is that we're one of the first ones, if not the first t- um, workload in, in Office uh, for Office 365. That's the team we call it, that's, that's the term we use to call ourselves, you know, SharePoint Exchange or all workloads. But one of the first products to expose ourselves in the graph, but not with a wrapper around a legacy API, but it will be our native API. There's nothing else there that is that that we need to expose or that we've exposed to developers. So it's really pretty interesting to say, well, what does it mean to have our f- the first API be the Microsoft Graph? So we've been working with the Microsoft Graph team to figure out what does it mean to onboard onto the graph. They have a bunch of standards that you need to follow. Um, obviously, there's a lot of you know security and technology review associated with that. Um, and we have a lot of work actually around um, the uh, you know this, the what is the, um, the the security model? One of the interesting things is, you know, in if you look at how the graph works today, there's kind of two ends of the spectrum. There's I can give access by default anyway. I can give access to my mail and my calendar, and I um, and at the tenant level, um, my tenant admin can give my an application access to everybody's mail and calendar or what have you. There's really nothing in between, right? So. Uh, which is exactly where Teams is, right? So as a member of a team, I can have access to all the files in the team, um, and everybody who has access to that team generally is is a peer, with a few exceptions, uh, in, in terms of what they can do and what they can't do. And that model doesn't really exist, and so we've been working really closely also with the with the graph team to define a security model that that will that will match that. But in the short term, we will just expose it with you know the the set of application scopes for a graph that matches what people need to be able to do. And um, and we'll, you're going to be seeing more of that shortly, but we are very hard at work in trying to expose all the functionality in Teams in the Graph API, but as, a, as our native API. Very cool. Yeah, and, and for our listeners, there there is you can get to some of the 
Microsoft Teams data through the graph today. Um, right. You know, graph is built, to, or I'm sorry, Teams is built upon those Office 365 group constructs. So I can go and say me slash joined groups and find the groups that I'm, or a group team, same thing, but I can find the teams right. that I'm a member of. And I can even go into like see members and even conversations. But I think the ch- like channel is such a unique thing for teams. Groups don't, like Office 365 groups natively, if you go to Outlook, they don't have a concept or a taxonomy of a channel. And so I think that's a lot of what we're working through. And, and to be quite honest, to, to query anything against an Office 365 group today, it requires admin consent. And I think that's what Bill is saying when we're talking yes. about like thinking through all the security so that we can provide a really good story for developers. Yeah, well, that that little that little tidbit that you mentioned at the end is actually an interesting one in itself. So, so one of the reasons that, because this mystified me too, but um, we've been talking to the, the graph team, one of the reasons that the ability to say, even something as simple, is user X a member of group Y? That's locked down as a tenant privilege. And I was like, why is that? That like that seems pretty innocuous. Well, the reason why, if you look at this, you look at the scopes in the Microsoft Graph API, you'll see things like um, uh, there's there's a permission called uh, user.read and user.readbasic. Um, but even that, user.read, you can get to the full profile of somebody, but you can't get to their manager or their direct reports. Right. Yep. And and so and well, why is that? Well, the idea is that you you don't want to give inadvertent privilege to traverse an entire tenant Office 365 tenants directory just by having one person to go for. Right. So you might be able to get the the uh, you might be able to get the details of the CEO, but you wouldn't want to be able to have that be a backdoor to get. <clears throat> to the entire company's directory just by traversing that, right? So that's why that's locked down. And on one hand, the Office three the Office three sixty five groups that I was mentioning earlier is modeled as a group, just like a security group or a distribution list. And that's a good thing for the most part. Except that it was also locked down more than it should be really, because <clears throat> as your listeners may know, you can't have distribution lists or security groups as members of Office 365 groups. So that so there's some, there's some places in the graph that have been locked down um, too too much actually, and and uh, we've been talking with the team on how we can unlock that. But that's a great example of where um, there's something that's kind of in the middle of hey the entire tenant of the entire company that's on Office 365 versus the ind- what has an individual has access to. So that's actually a small example that's um, that we'll be up to, to address in the short term. But it's really interesting that it's kind of a you know a side effect of how the graph evolved from Exchange and especially Active Directory. Cool. So um, I want to jump into some of these extensibility areas of Teams around kind of building. Like it's in a sense Teams version of an add-in, so things like bots and tabs. So we had we actually had Richard Moe on the show probably about a month ago, right after I think it was the week of GA for Microsoft Teams, and we he talked about some of the more recent uh, adjustments or uh, advancements in the extensibility model, and one of those was having 
not just one-on-one conversations with bots, but you could actually have a channel conversation. I was wondering if you could maybe describe at a little deeper level, like what are the differences behind having a channel conversation with a bot versus a one-on-one conversation? Right. Well, we really wanted to have the ability to have teams participate or bots participate in channels uh, in our preview. And the reason we didn't actually is that it was a lot of work. So one of the so to step back and think about how bots work in the first place, one of the sayings that we have inside Teams is that bots bots are people-ish, meaning that they're kind of like people in the sense that you can interact with them as people. They have a profile if you hover over their names and so forth, but they're obviously not people. They're applications. You know, under the covers, they have an app ID and an app secret, just like any other app does. So what we're trying to do is make it super easy for a developer to integrate a bot into a particular context while still maintaining all the security and compliance restrict um, compliance requirements um, that, that you have in Office 365. So, for example, you, we, we need to have the ability to say... Um, um, oh, I want to turn bots off entirely. That's obviously, you know, the, the kill switch for, for bots. But also, and we're working on this too, is the ability for tenant administrators to selectively um, block or allow bots inside their tenant. And for that to work, there's there needs to be a layer, if you will, kind of between the layer that uh, the users interact with and the layers that bots talk to. And to integrate that into channels where, I mean, let's think about what happens. So it, when I reply to a channel, then um, what happens, not only does a message get posted into a particular place, which is like a chat, there's a fan-out process where all the people who need to be notified about such things, they get, they also learn about such things. Um, they um, Not only from a notification standpoint, but also from a synchronization standpoint, right? So you know, I get a notification on my phone, let's say, when a channel that I'm sub- subscribed to, when something happens. So all that stuff needed to be plugged, um, plumbed in for, for bots. Well, one of the big things that we had to do, for example, was, and I alluded to this earlier, is the notion of at mention. So um, first, you know, how does a uh, bot at mention a user, and how does a user, um, uh, how does the user at mention a bot, and how does a user invoke a bot in the first place? One of the interest, one of the things that um, that we think a lot about is, as part of the platform, is we we tend not to think too much about platform features unless we can figure out a way to make sure that it's turned on by default at the tenant level, right? So it doesn't make any sense to do a ton of work for a feature that developers can't take advantage of because it's turned off in all of their customer sites and they have to go find the person, um, or s- and who, sometimes you don't even know who that person is, to try and turn this feature on. So with respect to, um, uh, with respect to bots, one of the interesting things in a channel is, okay, I'm now in a shared context. So a, one user adds a bot. How do the other people know that there's a bot listening or that there's a bot there, that A, they can talk to it, and B, that it might be listening? But more importantly, especially from a privacy standpoint, is how do you make sure that that you don't just kind of turn on a fire hose and that you end up having this big information leak from your company out to a bot? 
as a developer, that's not your problem, but certainly as a tenant administrator um, and as a, you know, a good corporate citizen, that, that would be something you'd be worried about. So we came up with this idea of, um, of how to kind of opt in to, uh, to mention a bot. And so that's why we have this idea of when you, you want to talk to a bot, you at mention it. And um, that, that actually, that actually uh, passed muster with respect to our privacy and compliance requirements. Um, but it is actually something that, um, you know, is something that you have to do a little bit differently as a developer. So one of the things you do is you have to say, oh, well, how do I know that it was me that was mentioned? Or how do I get at this list of app mentions and, and so forth? And so um, one of the, some of the things that we've been trying to do um, is actually give some samples and enhance some of the SDKs um, for, to make that kind of thing easier. One of the things that, that we're working on actually is if, if anybody who's messed around with uh, bot framework the bot framework SDK in both Node.js and C# -sharp knows that there's some differences in those uh, in those SDKs. The C# -sharp one has some things that the Node doesn't ha doesn't have, and, and vice versa. So one of the things we've been doing is working on a set of helper functions and, and samples and so forth, so to make it easier for people who who want to do both. And I don't know what it's like with with your listeners. I imagine it varies by company, but. Um, you know, certainly when we talk in the Valley, when we go down to San Francisco, we always ask, so do you program in C-sharp versus Node? And, and at least in San Francisco, not that that's a big surprise, uh, you know, far and away, there's far more interest in writing bots in, uh, in, in Node.js. So anyway, I know I've covered a lot of ground there, but the key thing is, you know, when you're interacting with a bot in a context that's shared by a bunch of people, you know, there's some different things to, to worry about and that you have to care about as a bot author. And then a lot of those, some of those at least, are mo are um, were were generated or motivated by um, the Office 365 compliance and and to make sure that we could turn things on by default for developers. That's awesome. So that's actually the first time as a bot builder, you know, I've I've looked at how Teams implements bots in a channel, and you again, it, it to in order to allow the bot to listen in you at mention that bot. And that's not just like a root conversation, that's even in replies. And as a as a developer at first, I was kind of like, well, why is it this way? And, and I think what you described there around, you know, you might have, you know, theoretically 50 bots in a channel and you probably don't want them hearing everything. And so it, it I think that totally makes sense from a uh, why that was implemented that way. How does that, though, like as developers look to build really good experiences, like they that really cascades through to a lot of things. I think about like a button. Like I can deliver a button through my bot that the user might have to click on, and those buttons can have different types of actions like open URL, invoke, um, I am back. If I wanted to I am back and the bot get that, I would need to probably include the at mention in the I am back. Is that correct? Um, well, when a bot wants to, when a bot wants to get, when a bot wants to send something back, it doesn't need to do the app mention. This is mostly um, when it when a user does. So, um, <clears throat> let me think. Yeah. So the scenario here is my bot sends a button to the user, and it's an I am back button, or I, whatever button they click is going to send an I am back to me as the bot, or at least that's what I want. Um, would the value there of that I am back, would it need to include the app mention? Or does the, the button framework somehow automatically handle that for me? 
Well, that's that's a good point. Um, I think you, you actually touched on a couple different things. One is that <clears throat> one is that I am back. In this case, look, there's there's you can, there's it, this is actually this is a really good question actually. First of all, I think it's it's clear that when you press a button as a user, it should go back to the bot. And so, as a developer, you shouldn't have to go th- jump through hoops to make that work. Okay, but at, th- at the moment, I think you have to jump through a few more hoops than than you should. That said, I am back. Actually, there's a shortcoming with I am back, which is one of the reasons that we inv- we uh, introduced invoke uh, that is supposed to get around that. Right. So you don't always want us. You don't always want to have the button say something back to the uh, you don't want to always have something visible in the chat conversation that you get sent to the bot you want to be able to say hey um, show me flight details for you know SEA to SFO you know you might have some query parameters in there you shouldn't necessarily have to have that as text that the user would yeah, see yeah and I, th- I think like I've seen really good examples of that for our listeners that have kind of playing around with teams or using it already within their organizations one really cool bot and and tab for that matter is poly i highly recommend you guys checking it out it's a you can basically do polls within your teams and poly when you set up a poll has buttons for each of the options and it uses that invoke and like you would guess you probably don't want to i am back your answer of a poll you probably want that to be more silent until you collect enough enough things so like that is that a good example of kind of invoking versus doing something else that's a great example, and you know the folks at Poly. We've been talking to them since, gosh, February of um, 2016, um, or maybe it was April of 2016. A long time ago, they were one of the first group of people uh, that that we reached out to in Silicon Valley. I, I was down on that trip when we talked to them, and they've been one of the most you know uh, steadfast uh, supporters of, of the platform as it evolved. And it's really you know we rely on. Um, Poly. Now we have, of course, a couple more that we talk to on a regular basis for a lot of great feedback for things like this. And yes, that's actually we we worked with them to kind of you know come up with that design, and we're still fine tuning it. I mean, what you exa- what you just listed was an example of where you know it's a little bit more difficult than it probably should be. Um, and uh, you know, and that's that's why Invoke is there. But like one thing we're working on is hey, when you pr- when even if you use Invoke, the Invoke verb you should have the ability to have some feedback to the user so that they know that something happened. And so, yeah, we're, we're, we're fine-tuning this, um, um, kind of in, in, we're iterating on this, you know, very rapidly to, uh, based on developer feedback to, to come up with a great solution. Cool. So an- another thing that I noticed that the Polybot does that is really cool is when you add it, it automatically sends me a welcome message into the general channel. And I know that like there are behind the scenes, the bot framework has all these different events that you can listen for. And, and actually I was really impressed to see all the things that you guys have done in teams that are team specific, like being notified when a channel is added or renamed mm-hmm. or deleted, but like how, so describe how a developer would go through actually being able to send a welcome message, like a proactive message when uh, a bot is added. <laughs> okay, I, I'm going to laugh a little bit because what, what I'm going to describe is when, when, I, when I first learned the specific details about how Polly had to do it, because they, I think, were the first people to figure out how to do this. Um, they weren't just the first ones that you noticed. They, I think, they were the very first ones to do that send a welcome message on this. What they're doing is actually, and I'll, I'll tell you how they're going to do it, or how they do it, 
it's a little bit hackier than it should be, and we're working on a way to make this a little bit less, uh, a little bit prettier. But here's what they do. So um, when you are added to, when you are added, when a bot is added to a team, we send an activity, a bot framework activity called conversation update. And what they do is they look for the conversation update in that one of the parameters uh, or one of the things that you get is the ID of the person being added to the conversation. And recall earlier I said something, I said how bots are people-ish. Well, the ID for a bot is 28 colon and then your app ID. Um, and so what they do is they look for that special case and say, oh, if the app mention of the person being added to the conversation is 28 colon and my app ID, then I know I was just added, and that's what triggers the, the welcome message. Now, that's, that sounds cool and it's not all that ugly, but um, I kind of cringe when I heard that because those IDs are supposed to be opaque. <laughs> and here we are saying as a developer you have to you know, concatenate 28 colon to... <laughs> to your app ID and look for that ad, that event. That's a little bit more convoluted than it should be. But that's what they do, and it does work. Very cool. So moving on to tabs, because I, there, I want to get to deep linking because I think it, it's such a kind of a, a nice hybrid between bots and tabs. But first of all, one of the things that I – like this took me a while to kind of wrap my head around, and, and it's probably a little bit of feedback for the documentation. But I, I've kind of come to the realization that there are – kind of two types of tabs, a static tab, and, and I think I would call it more of a gallery tab or a tab that's in a channel. Is is that a true observation? And, and if so, what are kind of the differences between the two? Now, what do you mean by the, the two, so, static versus gallery? So what I've noticed is that um, there, this was another thing that Richard Moe shared with, shared with us, which was um, right before GA, um, you guys released a, a a combined manifest where I could define a bot, and with that bot, as soon as I like start using that bot, it has a tab that kind of comes. Actually, you could have more than one tab uh, that comes along with it. Um, but I've it seems as though those are static and they only show up in like a one-on-one -on -one chat. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. So let me. I'll taking taking a step back. So. Yes, the idea was that a there's there's really three kinds of tabs and and uh, and two of them are supported so far. One of them is is the ones that okay when you first interact with a bot and when you interact with a bot in a one-on-one -on -one chat mode, tabs are a great way for them to expose say a help page or an about page or a details page, and so that's that's what the static tabs are for. The gallery tabs are ones where any user can add a tab to a channel and that's what shows up when you press the plus button you know when you're looking in a, in a channel the one that we don't have yet but we kind of rounded out is hey as a bot I want to be able to add a tab dynamically right so I'm interacting with you and say okay here do you want to show this as a tab so that, that'll be the third one that we'll eventually that, that we're working on rounding it out with but the basic idea is that to us, under the covers, a tab is just um, a, a bunch of, of data. Uh, to get technical, you kind of think as um, what is registered with the, the code for 
the source code for a tab that you build as a developer is almost is the class, and then there's a set of instance data, and the manifest is just a way of of recording that instance data, and then some default behavior, you know, in the in the user experience. So, you know, the one thing we don't have is, like I said, the the ability to kind of gen dynamically generate them. But that gives you an idea. That's static and gallery are terms that we uh, kind of played around with a, a lot. Um, you know, the, we we played around with some different names and so forth. But yeah. You think of there's some static ones that come along with with a bot, and there's a gallery ones that are for for channels, and then there's the really dynamic ones that uh, that you might that a bot could be able to add dynamically. And in, in the gallery tabs, I've noticed they're they're a little bit, maybe not just a little bit more advanced. I would say they're a lot more advanced in that like they by default have configuration. Like the in fact, it's interesting describing developers like how you build a, a like a traditional tab within a channel is like you don't actually point to the page you want to display in the tab that's actually set dynamically at runtime when you run that configuration page is that right that's exactly right yeah and um, a lot of what's in the in the in the Microsoft teams um, SDK is the mechanics for how to kind of orchestrate that sequence and so there's support in there for authentication there's a support there for okay I want to I want to show my configuration um, experience um, I want to um, um, I want to save my configuration settings and and I'm going to hand them to you so that we'll persist them for you and so forth and all, all of that has to be done in the context of hey you don't want some random you know you don't want some random URL to be pointed there you want you want to be able to say hey only look for these domains otherwise you know show an error for security purposes so yeah you're right that that all that is orchestrated by the SDK so let's talk a little bit about deep links because to me this is one of the I haven't seen there's certainly been some like murmurs from like internally at Microsoft but I haven't really seen the excitement out in the community yet around these, and maybe it's because they're still very new and people really haven't wrapped their head around this concept, but describe what a deep link is and like what we can do with them. So deep links, and as I mentioned, this is something that um, I, I designed, basically solve the problem of, I want to have a reference to something that is durable and is independent of any kind of particular device, um, you know, mobile or, or Windows or what have you, and independent of any operating system. Okay, so that's the problem we had to solve. And there's actually a lot more support um, for deep links in the, in the product than th we actually expose in the user experience. So um, I think there's only two or three places you can actually get a deep link, you know, onto the clipboard so you can look at it. <coughs> you can get a, a deep link to a tab. You can get a deep link to... Um, uh, Where's the other place you can get to it? Um, I can't remember exactly. And then once you click on it, then you go through a launcher experience um, sometimes, um, or sometimes it goes directly to it if you're using the desktop app. Well, what's interesting thing about it, though, is a you see, people see the deep links as URLs, and but that's not really what they are. The deep links are actually a chunk of JSON has all the metadata you need to construct a durable reference to an object. And that object is independent of teams, and it's independent of, of really anything. So, for example, with, with, with tabs, you have the ability to construct a link to, um, say, a, a planner task as opposed to the set of planner tasks, um, as one example. 
And there's some other examples as well. But the idea was, hey, I might, I want to create a link to a customer in a list of customers, a specific one, or an opportunity in 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 Dynamics or Salesforce. And I want to be able to refer to those entities, those objects, in, um, you know, from from anywhere. And so. Think of that as a chunk of JSON, because that's really what it is. And then when we turn it into a URL, that's just a way of serializing that chunk of JSON into a URL. So you end up seeing it as a serialization format, but really it's a chunk of JSON. And that's kind of cool, because that means we can extend it in other ways. Yeah, and so under, go under ahead. The cover, under, the, under the covers, the activity feed actually uses deep links. So if every time that you click on uh, something in the activity feed, you know, whether it be someone liked your message or somebody at mentioned you or whatever, it navigates to something, right? It navigates to a message or a tab or what have you or a document. And all of those are deep links. So for from a, a developer standpoint, there's really, I've seen kind of two ways to be able to take advantage of this as a developer. One is as part of the Microsoft Teams library, the JavaScript library that I can use for all the interactivity within my tab, there's JavaScript for generating a deep link. So if I have in my tab, if I'm listing a bunch of detail records, like you know I have 50 records there, I could have a, a, a generate deep link for each one of those. Or uh, from maybe my bot, I can innocence do a concatenation of that URL that has all the JSON mm -hmm. details so that someone can go not just to my tab that's in a specific channel. Like that's what's so impressive to me is yeah. I can get not only to a specific channel, a specific tab, and even a specific detail item within that tab. Well, it's even more than that. It's also a specific tenant, right? So I could be... that. That reference can be in any tenant in the hundreds of thousands or millions of Office 365 tenants around the world, and I can hand it to you, and you can click on it, and it'll log you in, and it'll get you to the right place. That's very cool. Very cool. So I'm I'm actually doing a bunch of work with these now, and and hopefully for our listeners, I'll I'll do a blog post on this probably in the next week, uh, just because I'm I think like this is this is the realization to me of like delivering a Microsoft Teams app and not just a bot or not just a tab, but like I want to deliver a true application that takes it. Cause like there's, you know, to me, bots provide such a great, like real time, uh, like uh, communication type of experience, conversational type of experience. But at some point, like I run out of like being like, even with all the great cards, I run out of like uh, a user interface and that's where like uh, the tab comes in and I can do so many so many neat things between the two I think yeah so definitely let's you can reach out offline and I can tell you a little bit more about how you can construct some of these links and what's there because um, a lot of it isn't really well documented but it's definitely there to stay and, and we're going to be building on that as a foundation I think there's two things to mention um, but one ba very backward looking and one forward looking with respect to deep links as I mentioned I can talk about this forever so I'll, I'll mention these two things and then I'll shut up <laughs> so the first so the first one um, is is the forward looking thing and that is and it kind of goes back to you know what we started the thing uh, this discussion about which is hey you know Microsoft is committed to building on you know all the platforms that um, people use today you know not just Windows but also iOS and Android and and, and Mac and and so forth and so um, all of the um, you know when I first sat down to do all this this deep linking stuff I'm like well every OS uh, 
has a deep linking uh, approach, but it's OS specific. And and I did, so I wanted to come up with a way of doing something that was application independent. So even though, so what we've come up with, this approach could be used for anything, not just Teams. So application independent, but also device independent and operating system independent. And so that goes to show, I mean, that's the type of thing that would have been like, well, why would you want to do that kind of in the old Microsoft? But now it's kind of the type of thing you have to do when you start from scratch on an app that is, you know, independent of any given operating system or device. So that's the forward-looking thing. The backwards-looking thing is, for those of your listeners who are familiar with Olay, and I don't know if you're familiar with Olay or not. I'm not. Well, Olay, you know, is uh, our you know Win32 um, interface that was big in, in Office to refer to embedded objects and so forth. Our d- we're basically uh, reinventing Olay because uh, our deep link approach is very similar to Olay monikers. Conceptually, they're very similar. Obviously, Olay monikers were not device or OS independent, but conceptually, they all they were a, a durable reference to an object that's owned by somebody else. And you have to be able to say, oh, here's this thing, resolve it, activate it, and go to it. It's the same idea. So here we are, you know, 20-something years later, <laughs> reinventing Olay bit by bit. Very cool. You know, it's funny. Like, it wasn't mentioned, and I just want to mention it because I think this is also like a brilliant thing that you guys thought of is uh, imagine I'm using – and I'm going to use Polly as the example just because Polly has a tab and a bot. But imagine I have the Polly bot but not the tab, and the bot doesn't necessarily it, – it, it doesn't necessarily know if the tab is there or not. So I can generate these deep links, and one of the cool things that you guys built in here was for any of the deep links – I can provide like a a backup URL. So if they don't have the tab, like we can still kick them out to their existing website that might have that detail record. Yep, that's exactly right. And um, <clears throat> we don't support this everywhere today, but when you actually click on a deep link to a, a bot, um, you are actually creating a conversation. So under the covers, it's a create conversation deep link. So it, sometimes... You, uh, the deep link um, approach allows you to create new things, not just uh, reference old things. And we do that also for create meetings and for create chats. So when you actually, um, uh, uh, I can't remember exactly where it is. The um, um, when you when you click on a uh, create a meeting, that's actually using a deep link, and it just creates it on the fly. So we use this everywhere. And we're just going to continue to invest in it going forward. Very cool. Well, I've probably kept you longer than I uh, I promised, but this has been a to me a fantastic discussion. I hopefully all the geeks that you know listen to our podcast religiously are are just eating this stuff up. But well, uh, Bill, I really appreciate it. We're going to have to have you back maybe after Build because I know there's a lot of things up your sleeve for Build, uh, and and I know our listeners will be eager to hear the download on that. Well, I look forward to it. This has been a blast, and you know, and probably the reason we went long is because I started talking about deep links, as I said I would. So, sorry about that. <laughs> awesome. Well, uh, definitely listen. Uh, check out the show notes. We'll have uh, a lot more information around the documentation for some of the things we talked about, like uh, you know, all the bot, like how to deal with at mentions and dealing with determining if the bot was added to a a team and all the stuff around tabs and deep linking so check that out and uh, we'll catch everyone next week 
Well, that's all for this week. Make sure you check out dev.office.com for all our podcasts, the developer program, and other amazing content. Also, make sure you follow us at Office Dev on both Twitter and Facebook. Until next week, get your code on.